it kind of got filled up quicker than we expected. <laughs> Looked at it last night and it was already bursting, so we uh, quickly whipped it away. And uh, a couple of the questions were quite personal about person, people's individual practice. So those are really good questions to bring. I mean, like, of course, you can ask questions about your, we want you to ask questions about your practice, but they're more like specific to an individual. So those are really good questions to bring to the group interviews. And uh, and there were also a couple of questions about ordaining. So if you have an interest in ordaining, come up to us at the end of the retreat and, and speak directly to us rather than in, in a setting like this. And uh, so we'll just dip in, lucky dip, and answer them as we go along. Okay, do I start? <coughs> Could you say a little, I mean, it's kind of not 100% clear to me, but. I try. Could you say a little more about your personal experience with emotions? How they lost their influence over you after a teaching? I think they mean, you know, after practicing with emotions, yeah. Uh, you know, it's going up and down depending, you know, what, what kind of emotions they are. But generally, yes, you know, over time practicing, Emotions do lose their, their, you know, their con they're not so easily convincing one anymore about, you know, that one has to act on, on those emotions. There is a, an increasing ability, you know, to have some space around the emotions arising and, you know, being there for some time and ceasing without necessarily having to, you know, do anything. Just being with those emotions and, uh, experiencing them fully, not suppressing them, and then, you know, they, we can learn from them, because in the core of each of those emotions, there is a, a wisdom in there. But if we immediately act out, we, we can't really penetrate to that wisdom. So we just keep on, you know, developing very strong habits and, uh, you know, getting lost. But if we can stay steady with the energy of the emotion and, and just you know, be with it, it's going to open up and reveal its its um, wisdom because it has something to, to teach us. And, you know, through making mistakes, you know, a lot of the time acting out and then regretting it, you know, one becomes just more careful. That's how it goes. And then sometimes one has to apologize and make a mess. And then you think, I just don't want to make constant a mess, you know. And then you become more careful. And and then you just see the benefits of that, you know. And then you have more capacity for bearing with unpleasant feeling. And so it goes. Slowly, slowly you become stronger. And that's how it was for me. And 
So this question is, if I am not my thoughts and feelings, then who am I? <laughs> and then it's, it's quite interesting the way it's written, because it's, it's written at the top, and then there's this big empty space. <laughs> that's the answer underneath. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, the Buddha was, was pointing to the, the process that we put a name to and, and make claim to as me and mine. And, uh, you know, so he, he recognized that it's through this attachment and identification of being somebody, a separate somebody in the world, that uh, this, like, the suffering arises from that basic position. And uh, when you look very carefully, you see, well, first of all, you can look at the body. Body changes. You know, when we're born, fortunately, when we're born out of our mother's womb, we don't look like this. <laughs> A lot of changes happen between then and now. And then as we grow older, changes keep happening. So you can see it over a long span like that, and just even just in a day, you know, you, you wake up in the morning, clean your teeth. So your teeth are changing a little bit, a little bit getting worn away maybe, and then uh, drink some water, and that water becomes part of your body. And then meditating, we put your clothes on, a bit of skin comes off. You don't notice it, but it comes off. And anyone who cleans, maybe even in the hall here, will find that every day there'll be a little heap of dust. And that dust is made up of skin and bits of bits of uh, cloth, maybe a little bug or two that might have offered itself here in the shrine room. And uh, so the, the body is changing all the time. Then we eat, and then that food becomes part of that food becomes part of us, and part of it is eliminated. You know, so this this process of the body is going on all the time. And then, of course, then there's uh, thoughts. So it's an interesting thing to uh, when I first ever heard the first thing I ever heard of Ajahn Sumedho's teaching was. Don't believe your thoughts. They weave webs of illusion. And when I heard that, I was kind of horrified because I thought, well, if I can't believe my thoughts, you know, well, what is there, you know? And uh, my thoughts were pretty crazy. So I'm glad that, that over time I did learn that thoughts are, you know, conditioned and they arise and they, they're there for a while and we can act on them or not act on them you know, make decisions based on, hopefully, sometimes at least, on wisdom. And uh, so thoughts come up in the mind. And if you, if you sit in meditation for long enough, all kinds of thoughts come up. All kinds of nonsense comes up. And you can be like, what? You know, where is that coming from, you know? So it's not me deciding to have the thoughts. Or I might think... Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go on a ten day retreat now. No thoughts for that time. <laughs> you can have the intention, but thoughts come anyway. So are they my thoughts or are they just that volitional tendency? And the uh, the same with feelings, you know, feelings are constantly changing. 
arising dependent on circumstances, arising there for a while, passing away. Perceptions, perception's tricky because uh, we don't notice it because we live within these perceptions all the time. But probably if you look around and you ask different people here, everyone will have a different perception of the world, of reality. So perceptions also, they're conditioned, they're there for a while and they change, but we take them to be reality. And, and, uh, and then our sense experience, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, it certainly seems like me, all of those things, but you know, what are they? They're just these, they're just constantly changing. They're ephemeral. So the Buddha isn't saying, you do not exist. He's saying, look at this process that you call me and mine. And where can you pin it down? Where, at what point can you say, this bit is absolutely me? So this is to be investigated. Enjoy. <laughs> Illness is inevitable, but do we have any control over when we get sick? Nature versus nurture. I think, you know, there's a certain amount of looking after the body which we can do, and if we neglect it, we, we can get easier sick. But also, you know, some people look very well after their bodies and then they still get sick. So it's, it's, a, it's a mixture, you know between pose and and some people are you know born very healthy and others are born you know very vulnerable and it's just a, it's just a mix you know but we we can only you know, i would suggest do the best you can without getting really obsessed and then just live <laughs> you know with with what you have got because there is no other other choice and uh, <laughs> we can learn a lot from illness also and learn a lot about acceptance and, uh, you know, can develop a lot of empathy. People who are very, maybe very healthy, never have any illness. For them it's very difficult to have empathy with people who are very kind of sick or weak. So it's just like part of, you know, the equipment which we have got at birth and then we make the best of it, the mind we have got and the body we have got and, you know, the social situation we are born in and everything. It's just, you know, what we have got and we can learn from it, we can grow from that rather than, you know, always wanting it to be different and, you know, always thinking I have to just get that thing under control and then I'm going to start to practice, then you never start. If the four elements are the elements of all things, then of what are thoughts and ideas composed? Lovely question. Well, it's, uh, what is a thought? Of what is a thought composed? So, is a is a thought a thing, or is it a a process? So, the way I would say see it is, 
thought would belong to the wind element or the air element because it's it's, it's movement and certain emotions also that's not kind of written in any of the Pali canon but in, in my own kind of observation certain emotions like anger would belong to the fire element fear would belong to the wind element uh, desire could belong to the fire element and to the earth element. Depression belongs to the earth element. It's very heavy. And uh, grief, water element. So we can we can see how the you know it's like the elements. Again, el- with the elements are not ultimately things. You know, we think of the elements as like okay, there's earth, water, fire, and air. Mm. But, like, let's take water. There's water. And then we get it really cold and it becomes solid. And then uh, we start to let it melt and then we heat it up and it becomes vapor. So, you know, water, you can't say water is, even water, which is kind of basic liquid, isn't it? Is is still, it goes through those different uh, forms. So all of everything that we try to put into categories, really, when we really look, is is all changing. None of it can really be fixed in any one place. So, uh, but but basically, wind would have the quality of movement, of of, of a lightness. Earth will have a quality of, of heaviness and density. Fire of heat or coldness, and. Uh, Water of cohesion. Water is generally connected with cohesion. So that's how you can kind of categorize things into those four elements. When doing the body scan with the four elements, is the idea to get a kinesthetic sense of the skeleton, say for Earth, or to visualize Earth element like the spine? I don't understand how you can directly experience the four elements in your body. <clears throat> I think, you know, in the beginning, maybe there's like maybe a, a bit of, you know, visualization can, can be helpful, you know, just to flash quickly, you know, a picture of. of of a bone or something, like you have seen it, you know, somewhere in a, in a, in a book or, some, or something like that. I think everybody has seen skeletons somewhere. But then, you know, in time, for example, if you have meditated longer for myself, if I focus, you know, on my upper arm, on the bone, I can, I can kind of feel it, yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, just through, through the repetition of, of, the, of the meditation that that sense, you know, of, of that heavy bone inside here, um, you know, it's just there. As soon as I direct my mind to it, I, I have a, a flash of that recognition. It's not kind of, I can't stay there for an hour, you know, and feel the bone. But as if, if I direct the mind there, I can, for a moment, you know, feel it and then move on to the next, move on to the next. So it is a, is that kines, a kinesthetic, would you say? Is that the mm-hmm. word? Kinesthetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. 
It's like that. In the beginning, you, you might just benefit from having a, a picture, a chart to help you, you know, to get in touch because some people don't know exactly, you know, how, it, how the body looks inside. So it can, can be helpful. We just had a retreat in Spirit Rock and we had, there was a big picture, you know, of a body outside in a hall and, and also like a, a real skeleton there. So we could have a look and, um, you know, familiarize ourselves. So it can be helpful, yeah. But there's no real rule, you know, how it has to be. You just somehow bring up that perception of bone. Maybe in the beginning you just do like, do the kind of, what's that, um, clench. clench your teeth, or maybe, you know, press on your fingernail. Just feel the hardness, you know, some way to get in touch with the hardness. And for the wetness is easy in the mouth. The heat is quite easy too. And the breath also, you know. It's very basic, it's very simple. And we tend to kind of be not very happy with simplicity. We always want to make it everything very complex and then it's something worthwhile to do. <laughs> but it's very simple, you know. It, it, it forces the mind to, to come to simplicity. And that can make us feel quite insecure. We don't know what to do. There must be something exactly what we need to do in order to be right. But it's, it's, it's not a very... I can't exactly tell you, you know. You, nobody told me either, you know. It, it's just I just, were, I just did the instruction and then it slowly, you know, it came forward basically through applying the mind. And in the beginning there mightn't be much there. But then if you, if you keep going, it's going to just emerge. Yeah. <laughs> Is romantic love real or an illusion? <laughs> I think the answer to that is yes. <laughs> but it has it has a function in nature. It helps, you know. It helps to to keep the race up. It's going a bit too well, you know. We are too many people on the planet. Becoming ordained, what, what felt, what? Becoming ordained, what felt the best about being ordained and what has been surprising or hardest? Um, I think it changes, you know, as, as one goes along, especially, you know, being ordained since 1993. In the beginning, you know, it was really, you know, the refuge of Sangha, you know, being able to settle in a place where there were people who have been practicing much longer than myself. It was a very great support, you know, that uh, having that um, protection and having a teacher and having an amazing library and having, you know, so many... Um, Support, so much support so didn't need to think about much other than you know my little 
job which I had and was a very, um, you know, great time of uh, being able to really go inside and, and grow strong. And then at one point, you know, it became oppressive also because there were certain things were uh, expected, you know, which after an amount of time I didn't anymore feel that I was able to live that way. So then what was once a support became a burden, you know, and then I had to think about what I do. So that was surprising actually, you know, because I thought... I'm just going to be there till the end of my life, you know, now that's it, now I'm on a very kind of a clear straight road, as be, you know, before my life was so confusing, but now it's all clear, but it wasn't like that, <laughs> that was surprising, so, you know, I couldn't just leave my brain at the entrance and, and just surrender, <laughs> it was more like, you know, it was like a, You know, it was like an initiation into into a completely different world. And then after living in that world for a very long time, you know, it turned out to be not so different, actually. Because people have their, you know, their issues in the monastery is just the same as outside of the monastery. And, you know, it's... it's um, you know, it's one undergoes a, uh, an amount of disillusionment, you know, if one st sticks with it and comes out the other end with, with more wisdom and compassion, yeah. Because often people who come to the monastery are very, have very high ideals and they are getting smashed one after the other in a, in a good way, you know, if one can flow with it. That was kind of different than what I thought, but it was good. And I, now, in hindsight, it couldn't have been otherwise. And what was the hardest? Giving up intimate relationship is the hardest, I think, for people like myself. That's very difficult, you know, not having, like, um, that rapport, you know, with one person. And, you know, having to kind of you know, relate to always a group of people. You can't choose those people. They just, whoever wants to be a nun and can, you know, live according to, to the regulations in the monastery can stay. And, you know, some of those people I would never, ever choose to live together with. <laughs> so that is hard. I think that's very hard. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> I answer it too. I could answer that too. Huh? I could answer that one too. Okay. Well, what is that's it? kind of a yeah. That one. Thanks. <coughs> so, what felt the best about being ordained? I think for me, the the um, the thing that I was really yearning for was a sense of. Um, being able to not, <laughs> ironically, not stand out, not to just be part of the Sangha. So I used to, I used to go to Amravati Monastery where there are a lot of monks and nuns and I'd be in the, the lay community and I would look across and I just thought, oh, I just want to be, I just want to be an anonymous nun in that group of nuns over there. And that was my kind of attraction. And I remember one nun was, was disrobing just as I was going in and, and I said that to her and she said, oh, I've been looking over at the lay people thinking, I just want to be another <laughs> lay person, just like everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
so <laughs> but i did i did um really enjoy the the simplicity of of the robe shaven head and you know not not being identified by as a person by this by what i put on you know by the clothing that i put on i like that very much i still like that um and there was also a sense of um I think a, a very strong sense of being able to uh, realign my life because my life had a tendency to go off the rails in one direction or another and coming into the sangha the monastic sangha it was like okay there's a clear alignment and I, I had felt a lot of uh, rapture actually for quite some time after taking the h precepts the novice precepts it was like wow this is fantastic you know great and that lasted for quite a long time and uh, yeah, and then the next uh, sort of we've actually both of us have been through four different ordinations for various reasons, so so that was for me like the most powerful one of the the kind of giving myself to the sangha, and and then the others were just more reaffirming and realigning or whatever, but that was uh, that was very good, and what's been the most surprising or hardest i didn't really i didn't really uh, know when i when i entered the sangha the monastic sangha how different it would be as a woman than if i'd have been a man i had I, I was really quite naive about that and it took me quite a while to really get how different it was so uh, and i think i was probably in denial for quite a long time about it and uh, gradually it was kind of it got hammered in no, it is different. It is different. So that was uh, surprising and disappointing, but it's also been very educational for me because it's uh, it's taught me about uh, a certain structure of uh, a paradigm of of privilege and um, you know if those which we and we all end up in different in different constellations of these in different situations of, of where there's. Uh, a, a body of people who are in a situation where everything's kind of geared towards them and then there's the people who are not in that who constantly have to hold the other side so I'm grateful to have, have seen that so clearly and to have learned about that and that's it, and also coming here to America um, that really um, sort of sparks an interest for me in white privilege particularly and uh, you know how I, I very quickly noticed when living in San Francisco how like how deep racism is in this country and uh, so it's seeing that kind of paradigm has has you know brought this interest in understanding that more more fully and educating myself as you know what is what is it to be a white person in a white person's world and uh, and how is it to not be how is it for the people who are having to tell their you know particularly african-american people who, you know, like mothers having to tell their sons what to do when they get stopped by the police while they're driving their car because they're driving while black you know this kind of thing <laughs> keep your hands on the steering wheel and move slowly you know it's kind of heartbreaking for me actually to to recognize that this is there's a whole you know, there are whole communities of people in this country who who have to live in that uh, paradigm. And then there's the majority of 
of good white people who don't know that, who are really unaware of it, but are part of it. So it's like, I think what I, what I learnt was, I lived with Buddhist monks, you know, like I, I consider the, the monastic Sangha probably one of the highest forms of living, you know, beautiful high morals and ideals and intentions. And, and so I realised like there are these good, good people who are part of, through being unconscious, are part of a system that is harming other people. And I see the same here in this country, where, you know, as long as we remain unaware of our privilege, we are unconsciously causing harm. So I really uh, encourage everyone to look into that. There, are, There's a lot of material out there, actually, at the moment. And... Uh, it's not that necessarily everything will change, but at least there will there will be consciousness, more consciousness around what's going on. So I, I do feel, especially in this country, because it's very, very strong and it's and it's hidden. So, so that's probably the biggest surprise for me was was finding myself way down here in a system where, as a female, and particularly as a Western female, you know, you're you're like. You really don't really have a place. You can you can hang on to the edges with your fingernails, and so uh, I think that was the biggest surprise for me. And uh, it's also been a great education. I do not identify as a Buddhist, yet I am clear-minded that the teachings are most wise. Question. How to calm the internal battle within, which daily wages war, the decades of fire, of wrong view, which tells me things will fix me, and intellectual response doesn't work, help. <laughs> <laughs> Um, things will fix me so that I think that is meant you know to consumerism will um, relieve me from um, suffering yeah I think uh, we have spoken about that already yeah it doesn't work and I think you know one can just uh, because sometimes it's really difficult to um, get a an experiential f- feeling about that but we we can do that for example you know when we have with eating it's, it's just one way you know how we can um you know test that for example if there's something you you really really crave eating and then if you're really consciously with mindfulness you sit down and man how much can you eat you know of something until you you start you don't want anymore not not much you know so that's that's a very good example so all of those you know things which we can uh you know put inside the body or you know own in any way they they can't bring a lasting satisfaction because you know if we want something and then we fulfill that wish then the wanting uh, will awake 
you know, very quickly after a few days and they want the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. That's why, you know, real lasting satisfaction can only come through, um, you know, letting go of wanting, uh, renunciation. And that uh, true renunciation can only, is, is born from insight. It, you can't force yourself to renounce. It has to come from a deep insight into the unsatisfactoriness of, you know, of all of those things you can buy. We do need a certain amount of things, you know, like we need shelter, we need clothes, we need medicine, we need food, we need um, a trans- some transport. We, we do need things, but we don't need a lot of things, you know, which people or which, which like, you know, the advertisements, etc., try to, uh, you know, steamroll us into believing that we do need it. So there is, like, you know, just intelligent discrimination. I think it's not that difficult, really. It's just, you know, sometimes it's more and more difficult in comparison, you know, to other people because there's like a certain pressure, you know, in society. If you want to belong to a certain group of people, you have to have all of those things. So it, it, it requires a certain courage, you know, to, to step out of that red race. And, Yeah. I think one has to just make a choice, you know, and reflection on death can be really supportive. You know, to really sharpen one's discrimination what what is important and what isn't, because nothing we can take with us, you know. So it's it's I think it's really important to um make much of the, of that contemplation and and, and bring it into your life, you know, and associate with people who have already done that before you and they can help you, you know, to do it yourself. Go with, be with the right people. Don't, don't, they have, you have one, this wonderful uh, chant, you know, don't associate with fools. Associate with wise people. Yeah. Is praying or saying positive affirmations to yourself appropriate during meditation? I know the goal is to have an empty mind. However, sometimes focusing on specific goals help my mind from wandering. So, uh, it's a common misconception that the goal of meditation is to have an empty mind. It's really to know what is, is going on in the mind. So sometimes the mind is empty, not that often, but sometimes the mind is empty. Or sometimes, you know, may, maybe settle into a deep state of meditation, it's empty for a long time. And then, you know, then it, you come out of the meditation and it's engaged again. Or it may be always going along with something or other. But the important thing is to have awareness of what is happening in the mind. And then once one is aware to respond to that in the appropriate way. So so it might be that uh, as you're sitting, you realize your mind's distracted. 
you could call it deluded distraction. So it's like it's not a it's not a state that's going to lead you anywhere. And so then you use um, you could use an affirmation or a or an intention that's wholesome that keeps your attention. And then you're you're cultivating a wholesome state. So there's that's great. That's great. And you know that you can also that's one way of transforming the the kind of distracted habits of the mind or also negative habits so if if you have a tendency to go into critic criticism or self judgment or judgment of others, then to replace those thoughts with with thoughts of you know may I be well, may you be well it's great. And it also helps to calm the mind. So it might you might find through doing that that mind starts to get more peaceful. So yes, it's good. Nobody wanted to do that. I save a banana from breakfast and have a few crackers I brought from <laughs> home. <laughs> so much habit in eating three meals. Can you discuss help me with conditioned habits? Yeah. You have to be courageous, you know. You have to just, you know, try to to just meet that fear, you know, of not having enough. Because there's so many people, you know, who have not even one meal a day. So I think two meals a day is, should be plenty. And if you really feel, you know, that you have a, a health issue, that you need to have something in the evening because otherwise you get lightheaded or so, that's, I think that's okay. And, but if you just do it because you're afraid of, of being hungry, then you're really a coward, you know. <laughs> because it's, it's not as bad as you think, you know. And it's a, it's a self-empowerment, really, to be able to not have something, I think. But uh, we've seen that in a monastery, some people, you know, they have a problem because they can't have intimate relationship. Other people have a problem because they can't eat in the evening. <laughs> And if this is all they want, when I disrobe, I'm going to just bite in an apple like this in the evening. <laughs> <laughs> I, for me, that's really, uh, has never been an issue. So maybe I'm just, um, you know, have For not sure. much empathy. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think, you know, just um, uh, have courage and, and do it. So, so it's, uh, hunger is it's interesting to look at it in, in a context like this because we're not going to get really, really hungry. You know, in, there's going to be breakfast, there's going to be a meal. You know that tomorrow there'll be food, which, like I said, the tutor says, a lot of people in the world don't know that. And what I found in the, in the monastery when you know keeping eight precepts is I'd get hungry sometime in the afternoon. What I would think of was hungry, I would feel hungry. And then quite often it would just be this little movement of gas and then everything was fine. <laughs> so it's worth kind of just waiting. Just wait a while. It's like sometimes it's just like a little bit of pressure somewhere in your intestines and you think, Oh, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. And then it changes. So explore it. So what is the meaning of the words in Prajnaparamita mantra, which we haven't done yet? Gatte gatte para gatte para sangate bodhiswaha. This is um this is a Mahayana mantra that we added uh, and sutta teaching that we added to our chanting books. We have a different chanting book than this one at the Vihara, 
which we previously have mailed here in large boxes and then mailed back again and we decided to use these ones and instead but uh, we added that <coughs> because it's um the it's called the heart sutra or the heart of prashnaparamita sutra and it is in a way it's looking at uh, most of the theravada teachings are looking from from the point of of the unenlightened mind how to realize enlightenment so it's like a it's like a map and the the heart sutra as it's known is looking from the opposite direction so it's looking from the perspective of the already enlightened mind at phenomena and uh, it's kind of hard to really explain what that means but it, it, it literally translated it means gone 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 beyond gone beyond beyond um it is suchness something like that and there's a, a poetic translation which uh, scholars wouldn't uh, say was quite right but i found very helpful um by a man called Alex Hickson and uh, he translated translates it as pure presence ever transcending transcending transcendence transcending even the transcendence of transcendence it is suchness so it's uh, and prajna in pa- prajna is sanskrit in pali that's panya which is wisdom and paramita means perfection so it's the perfection of wisdom and when uh, wisdom is perfected one sees directly the empty nature of all things or the flux of all things so it's pointing to the the emptiness out of which all of this and us arises and falls back into again and it's also uh, bhikkhu bodhi pointed out to us when he visited us one time that it's a uh, is feminine is feminine noun um prajna so uh, it's i find that quite fitting because it's like the 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 empty womb or the womb out of which all of these all of this phenomena this whole universe arises and it's not like it, there's a point and then it arises and it, and it goes back again but it's constantly constantly arising out of this emptiness gatte gatte para gatte para sangatte bodhiswa Opening awareness where there is aversion question mark. Yeah, um you know for example, you know, if we we really pay attention when we when we feel aversion there's a contraction and, and, and an energetic pushing away of something, you know, a thought or a person, an object, anything. And then, you know, if if we become aware of it, you know, then just an opening, a, a relaxing and and then you know acting from from that opening rather than pushing away because again you know every emotion there's an information in there so if aversion arises there might be like a reason there you know but then to act from that aversion most likely is going to be a skillful way of acting you know but if we take that as an information there's something you know which we have to then investigate you know and then see but if we don't open ourselves to what what's happening 
then we can't really investigate. So we the, we can we prematurely, you know, act and then afterwards often regret. So it's 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 again it's the middle way, you know, to take that information and then work with it instead of uh, you know instead of a reaction without investigation it's more like uh, an action you know which is an informed action and you know if we come from that contraction that wouldn't work so that's why we speak about you know opening to what is and then we have a, a, the whole picture and wisdom and compassion can come, you know, and inform our action. Can you explain a little more fully the difference between how you see and how you look? I'll try. Um, so seeing. So if I close my eyes, you could close your eyes too, you help me with this. Close your eyes. Can't really see anything. <coughs> Open your eyes. But not... Uh, keep your focus soft so there's seeing but then if I want to look maybe I'm looking for somebody particular I'm looking for someone with red hair so then I, I say oh there's somebody <coughs> with red hair so that's looking it's got it's got an intention and it's got a focus and it's and then I might have um, ideas about what you know what it means or there's there's like overlay in the looking or there might be searching through looking or it might be um, blanking out certain so I don't notice anybody else in the room just the one with red hair because I'm only looking for someone with red hair whereas seeing is just it's just the direct experience just seeing there's visual contact visual consciousness seeing arises and there's a, a beautiful teaching um, in the suttas where the Buddha speaks about, uh, he, he says, in the scene, there is only the scene. In the herd, only the herd. In the cognized, only the cognized. So it's very, very simple. It's again coming back to this incredible simplicity that we cannot kind of get a handle on because we, we have to, complicate things. So to just see without wanting and not wanting, liking and not liking, um, making stories about what we see, just seeing in the scene, only the scene. Looking has got intention. Don't say any more? No. <coughs> Funny question here. Why did the Buddha ref oh, yeah. why did the Buddha refuse to teach women? The Buddha never refused to teach women. Let's put it a little bit closer, I think. So that's a misunderstanding, you know. Uh, there's a lot of uh, you know, even nuns, you know, teaching who got taught by the Buddha and the Arahant Bhikkhunis we were chanting. So he 
you know, Buddha said he would not pass away be before he doesn't have a, a sangha of bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, lay women and lay men. He considers, you know, Buddhism to be fully established in a country where there is the fourfold sangha established. Until short, you know, the one one of those one fold was missing, which was the bhikkhuni sangha, and they are slowly coming back. And then there's a second question. Do you think it is possible to be spiritually enlightened and yet not fully conscious of social issues such as isms? Um, you know, I'm not isms. one of isms. So I'm not 100% sure, but I think yes, of what I, ha I have experienced, you know, with teachers in Asia. I think, you know, everybody is enlightened within a certain culture and context and they are, you know, conventionally speaking, manifesting that culture, you know. And they are enlightened in, in terms of, you know, greed, hatred and, and delusion. They might be, you know, very, you know, kind people who don't have those very strong uh, urges coming up like we have. You know, but still they have, uh, you know, they have um, limitations in terms maybe they are afraid of, of gay people or they, you know, are afraid of women and they, you know, have very great, they think the king is the most important person in the country and you have to do everything what the king says. Like in Thailand, for example, you know, you... So I think people are enlightened within a context, but I'm not quite, you know, there's those two different levels of enlightenment, the Arahant, and the Buddha, and what is, as far as I understand it, is you know a Buddha is is a being who has is fully enlightened in the sense that he or she has you know um, cultivated all of the ten paramitas, so they have this lev this way of enlightenment is much more full than an arahant, and. It might be, you know, that a Buddha would be able, you know, to completely raise above cultural conditioning. But I've never met one, so I don't know. <laughs> but I hope. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to say something to this? Well, I think that's a very good answer. And I'm just thinking about you know, the Buddha, actually. Uh, it did seem to be kind of cutting through most of the conventions of the time, like the caste system, for example, which is huge you know it's, it's deeply deeply ingrained and he just cut right through that in the sangha monastic sangha and uh, so I think a fully enlightened Buddha would you know understands convention as convention and, and what is real and what is not real and I think I would probably say the same it, it appears that that people can realize enlightenment and still be caught within a, a cultural context which is limited yeah and one, especially if you're a nun, you know, you, you get to feel that a lot in Asia. <laughs> or even not in Asia. Huh? <laughs> even not in Asia, yeah. <laughs> but if you speak about, yeah, no, it's true, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing sometimes. <laughs> How do you deal with interpersonal conflicts in your community? Um... So, well, we all share an intention to, uh, you know, not 
create conflict. And of course, when you put people together, there is conflict. And uh, actually, with one of the, with the, the question about uh, being surprised when I when I ordained, one of the things I was surprised about was I, I think I assumed that you know coming into a monastery, we're all going to be like-minded and we basically all be you know more or less on the same page and there won't be much conflict. And I was very wrong about that. <laughs> you know, there's so many different views, understandings, uh, emphasis, and it's amazing. People can be complicated. So um, we have a very small community, which in some ways makes it easier, in some ways makes it more intense, because everybody's position is strong, you know, it has a, has a strong influence. Um, let me see, what do we do? So we have, uh, we have times that we meet together. So we have what we call a heart meeting, where we will sit together and during that time drop any kind of hierarchical positions and um, talk to each other and give honest feedback and as, as best we can hear each other and take away what we're, we're told and work with it as best we can. Sometimes we can hear it, sometimes we're not ready to yet. And, and actually as a, as a kind of a background to that, we have... Um, Every monastery, this this is not every monastery does that, but every monastery has a mm, like each year you might do it annually or you might do it more frequently. You let your sisters or your brothers or your fellow salmoners know that you would like to invite feedback. Please let me know if there's anything I'm doing by body, speech, or mind that is causing harm to others and. Uh, as long as we keep that in mind, as long as we, we stay open to that, then even though they, there is conflict and conflict arises, it, it can be worked through. And it's worked through not just in order to have peace, which is nice, but it, it often is at the expense, you know, if you just want peace, that can be at the expense of actually things that need to be said or, or processed. So it's more like, okay, we're all here with a wish to awaken and conflict arises when people attach to views or when there are blind spots or ways of communication that are hurtful or whatever. So we all, we each hold the intention to awaken and we want to see the places that are obstructing that. We have, we hold the intention at least of wanting to see and sometimes like, ouch, I'm not ready to see that yet. But uh, there's kind of um, a collective movement in that direction to uh, to either resolve conflict or to, if it's not resolvable, to just give space. Do you want to say more? Yeah, it can sometimes, you know, when you come into a community, you can have what we call like, have a strong karma, you know, with a certain person, where certain things, they just, you have to just live with it. And when the time is right, it can be resolved. And you know, one, one ha if one has lived in the monastic life long enough, one knows that, and there is more capacity to just live with this ambiguity, you know, with the dissonance, without making a lot out of it. So it requires you know, a lot of experience, I think, you know, to. Um,
you know, to keep keep going in difficult situations and and not lose the the trust. You know that that. That things you know will will come to a conclusion at the right time, and often it can be you know it's not like necessarily the way how we think it's going to be. It can be very surprising you know how things resolve themselves. For example, you know, in our situation when we lived in a big community in England and we were in that you know we were hitting the glass ceiling, and we just we didn't know what to do about it you know, and then things happened and now we are here in America, we never uh, had planned that, you know, at all. So we were just like working with it and uh, keeping an open mind. And then the, suddenly the door opened and this and that happened and and suddenly it was all, you know, it resolved itself, but in a very different way than what I was thinking it would. So that was very interesting. So if I would have been very much, you know, holding on to my ideas how it should be, I might not have, you know, seen the door opening and stepped into, or stepped through it. So, yeah, mm-hmm. if one is too fixated, you know, on having, knowing how it's going to be, how it has to be, then, you know, it can easily, uh, you can easily overlook, you know, the a real opportunity where you can, grow and where your aspirations can be manifesting in a much better way than what you thought actually <clears throat> I think it's 20 past 9 well, actually we've just got two more I think we could do that I have one there yeah, we're almost done please address how to respond within oneself as well as to the other person when one has felt oneself to have suffered and and um, and unkindness from another. I think you know for if you if you have suffered an unkindness from another. I think the most important thing is first you know to come to yourself and and really you know deal with that hurt by by just being open and and you know letting it letting it settle before you go and address it with another, if it's possible to be addressed. And that also, you know, is if you don't immediately react, just give it an opportunity to see what happens, you know, to not necessarily have to sort it all out yourself, but just give it a little bit space and time and see if an opportunity arises, you know, to address it in a, in a way. And if that doesn't arise, maybe, you know, then we have to maybe you know, approach the person and, and ask for a meeting if that's needed. It's, you know, there's no hard and fixed rules about those things. But what's really important is, you know, to open yourself and acknowledge, you know, the hurt and just be with that and wait for it to settle. And then, you know, when the mind is clear, then take action. But not take action in the turmoil, you know, because then you're just making more of it. And sometimes we do, and that's also okay, you know. But just notice that it's not necessarily helpful, you know. And then over time, you you be able to stand back because you remember last time when I did it, I made a mess, you know. I I don't want to do that again. So then you just bear with that ambiguity, you know, of not knowing how to get that right, 
And then suddenly, you know, maybe the person comes to you and apologizes. And then, whoops, you know. You, start, you suddenly see, you know, you don't have to sort it all out yourself. You know, you can, you can see, you know, how, how things are going and then at the right time you, you do something. It's, 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 a, it's a process again. And we have to listen to the process and then we know what to do. I was very touched by this one. It's, it's just two words and a question mark. Self-loathing. So I think this is a, you know, it's a terrible affliction when we get stuck in that. And I think many people have uh, conditioning which uh, results in self-loathing like a little bit or a lot. And there are different things. So the first thing I would say, the first thing is, what is it based in? Is the self-loathing based in, I keep uh, doing things that I, that I feel bad about? You know, am I, am, I, am I actually doing something in the world that I regret and feel bad about and then I, I, I can't live with myself? If that's the case, whatever it takes, doesn't matter what it takes, even if you have to be chained down, <laughs> stop doing it. <laughs> and uh, or it might be um, something from from when we we're very young, you know, that uh, something happened and we felt bad about ourselves because children always think it's their fault, and then we've carried that through our lives and and it's it's come into our adult life and it's kind of internalized and internalized badness. So that's something that, that uh, we need to really take care of and uh, liberate that little one, love that little one, let her or him or they be uh, well. Let them let them speak and let them uh, be heard and let them heal. And for that, you know, you might, might be able to do that in relationship or with a therapist or with friends, with Sangha. So those are ways uh, that we can help deal with that. And, uh, but also just to say that sometimes it can, you can always, almost be conditioned to, uh, you know, like we, we have a sense of self and then we think, well, we're not supposed to be proud. I'm not sure if it's the same. I mean, in England, anyway, in the UK, <laughs> not supposed to be proud. You know, you're not supposed to kind of have any kind of self-aggrandizement. You know, that's really looked down upon. So, but there is this sense of self. So let's just make it a bad one then, you know. So I know that quite a number of people who have this kind of very low self-esteem, but it's quite self-obsessed. So the Buddha speaks about... Um, the three kinds of conceit, and I, I always thought of conceit as like I'm really great. I mean, you know, not that I thought I was really great, but I thought that conceit means I'm really great. I'm better than everybody else. But uh, the Buddha says there's the conceit of being better than others. There's the conceit of being worse than others, and there's the conceit of being equal to others. And they're all forms of conceit, because all of those three, you're creating a sense of self in relation, in comparison to other people. So uh, that was kind of interesting. 
So that, that whole self-loathing, it's like, okay, you know, we're talking earlier on about the, the self, ultimately is a process. So if we're going to be selfing, we have a, you know, if, if you're conscious, you have a little bit of choice in how that selfing happens. You can, you can play with it even after a while, of like selfing into some, you know, something that you haven't, somebody that you haven't been before. Allowing the, the possibilities to be uh, wider. But if you need to heal, find ways to heal. And if you need to restrain, restrain and transform the habits. And uh, the five precepts are a great basis for transformation. <coughs> How can one deal with obsessive thoughts in meditation? You know, one way of uh, there's like antidotes there for obsessive, for you know, for the hindrances which can come up in meditation. I mentioned them in a minute, but if it's really a very strong obsessive thought, I think it's better to really go to the underlying, you know, feeling what is there. Like, is this a the basic root, you know, is it is it aversion or is it desire? It must be one of those two which is underneath, you know, and then really kind of um, let that you know speak to you and really be with that with that uh, very strong um, state. You know, it's one of those three roots: uh, greed, hatred, and delusion. But if there's obsessive thoughts, it's, it's one of those two mostly and to just really fully uh, let that you know reveal itself what it is all about if there's a very strong like ill will you know that's for example then you look underneath there maybe there's fear look underneath there maybe there's some sadness it's just it will reveal itself slowly and if it's something lighter you know uh, like what we call a hindrance then we would uh, you know apply an antidote. For example, if it's um, desire, sexual desire, we just uh, um, contemplate the unattractiveness of the body, you know, looking at the body in terms of the body parts, looking at the body parts like looking at the grains in a, in a bag, you know, grain of rice, grain of barley, they are not sexually attractive, it's just the same as skin, flesh and bones. So that's one way, you know, how we can uh, get to what's underneath appearance and that can cool down that desire. And then ill will, the classic method is, is to, um, you know, uh, look at the body in terms of the four elements. Because, you know, we can't have ill will towards the earth, towards water, fire and, and air. So that helps, you know, to break down that uh, emotion and then if there is um, uh, sloth and torpor contemplation of death and putting uh, putting some um, attention on the in-breath and then restlessness and worry is again contemplation of death and putting some attention on the out-breath relaxing and doubt it's like in vice investigation, you know, maybe go and ask a teacher, maybe go and look in a book, maybe, you know, contemplate the issue. So that's like the five classic antidotes. 
but if it's really very strong, if it's really obsessive, then we just really have to go underneath and resolve what's underneath, you know, what fuels the obsessive thinking. And then and that can take very, very long time, you know, if it's if it's like coming from a traumatized very early place, you know, then it might take ten, fifteen years, something like that. So it can take a very long time, some of those things. But, you know, it's like a, sp- a spiral process. We come back to the same issues again and again because there's only so many issues we can have as human beings, you know. <laughs> Having sexual desire, wanting food, wanting to be famous, wanting to have na- a lot of nice things, being jealous. There's, there's like so 15, 20 things, you know. And everybody has a certain mixture and you come back to it again and again in an in a ever deeper way, you know, resolve, resolve it in an ever deeper way. And, you know, and then you, you more and more recognize, you know, that these, these constellations, they are not our enemies, you know, they are just our food, our raw material, and we have to, you know, distill the wisdom out of it, and we have to free it up and make the energy available, you know, for wisdom and compassion, rather having it caught up in these unskillful patterns. Because that's all we have got, you know, we have just that energy which we have. In the beginning it's caught up in all kinds of unskillful patterns. And that same energy, you know, at the end, it's still the same energy, it's just freed up from those patterns through insight. And and for that, you know, we have to hold it like in a cauldron, you know, and, and just boil it and, you know, be with it and bear with it. And it's it's just like, it's a, it's a alchemical process, you know, nothing, we can't afford to throw anything out of the window, we need it all. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's all like in a garden, you know, where you, the weeds, you, you, you dig them back into the ground, they become nourishment for for the vegetables and for the fruits you know, which grow in the garden. You don't just throw them away. The same with these unskillful patterns, you know. You they are your teacher. And they is all you have got, you know, that's your raw material. But then you can make something very beautiful out of it, you know. But it's it's um it's not easy. And it needs a lot of uh, patient perseverance. You know, the Buddha said, patient perseverance is the most important ingredient for the, um, what he calls the holy life. It's, it's not a very flamboyant quality. It's like earthworm practice, like Achan Cha called it. You know, just the next thing in front of you, just keep going, you know. So it takes a long time. Because we always get back to the same places again and again. And and slowly but surely, you know, everything gets transformed. And then, you know, it's 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 uh, much easier also to have uh, compassion for other people because we have been there. We can understand. And and then we can share that, you know, with others. And that's, that's a great joy if we can, you know, really make a difference for somebody else in, in their life because we have, you know, we have been there. Yes. 
That's the last question. And we're going to end with a chant on page 43. 